It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have three parts for you today. In part one, I'll review our last two Primavera matches. In part two, I'll get you caught up on all the latest news around the club. And in part three, I'll preview our match on Monday against Roma. So let's begin with the Primavera who played against Lecce on Saturday. Before I even get to this match, I've mentioned in the previous match review that Hellas Verona, who was two points behind us in the table, had a game in hand. That match against fifth place Juventus was played last Tuesday the 5th. Remarkably, Hellas Verona won that match 2-1, and they did it in dramatic fashion. Philip Yeboa scored with the final kick of the match in the 94th minute. With that win, Hellas Verona moved ahead of us in the table on 33 points, which meant that we dropped into the relegation playout zone on 32 points. So moving on to our match against Lecce, every match is important at this point, but this one was especially important. That's because Lecce are the other club in the playout zone, They were 5 points behind us coming into this match, so this was an opportunity for them to reduce the gap to only 2 points. Lecce had come into this match having lost the previous 2 against Empoli and Spal respectively. Meanwhile, we had drawn our previous 4. Once again, we had a few players missing for this match. Giuseppe Ambrosino was not in the squad and Matteo Marchisano continued to recover from injury. Antonio Vergara was available but started on the bench as he was only able to complete one training session during the week due to a flu. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Lecce lined up in a 4-3-3 with Alexandru Barberi in goal. Emin Hasic and Razvan Pascalau played at centre-back. Rob Nize started at left-back and Mats Lemmon started at right-back. Katalin Vultrar played as the regista, with Medon Berisha to his left and Juan Gonzalez to his right. 
Yautu Momo started on the left wing, Dario Daka started on the right wing, and Giulio Carozzo started at striker. For Napoli, Nicolo Frustalupi made five changes to the squad that he fielded against Torino. He lined up in his usual 3-4-2-1 formation with Huberti Dasic back in goal. He missed the Torino match while he was deputizing for Alex Meret with the senior team. Daniel Hisai returned from suspension to start over Pasquale Pontillo in the back three, alongside Davide Costanzo and Benedetto Barba. Enrico Giannini started over Francesco De Marco at left wing back, and Domenico Di Donna started over Giuseppe D'Agostino at right wing back. That was Di Donna's first start in a month when he started against Atalanta. Francesco Gioielli and Colisacco started in the center of the midfield. As I mentioned, Antonio Vergara picked up a bout of the flu, so Antonio Trophy dropped from the 9 to start in his place. He and Alessandro Spavone started as the two trequartisti. Finally, Giuseppe Ambrosino also returned from the senior team to play at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. Unfortunately, this match didn't start any differently than many of our other recent matches. That is, Lecce were the more positive side and created the lion's share of the chances. In fact, they created just about all of the chances in the first half. Our only chance, if you could even call it that, was a free kick won by Gioielli in a dangerous area. The reason I hesitate to even call it a chance was because Trophy went directly for a goal but struck his shot straight into the wall. Otherwise, Lecce had all the chances. In the 15th minute, Carozzo played a low cross into the area. Barba got to the ball first but played it straight to Daka around the penalty spot. Fortunately, the ball was bouncing and Daka got under the shot and it finished well over the bar. Lecce came close a few minutes later attacking in transition. Gonzalez made a lovely play on the right wing. Fighting off the tackle from Costanzo before slipping the pass between Gioielli and Hisai, Carozzo received the ball at the edge of the area and quickly went for goal. Unfortunately for Lecce fans, the ball was always rising and the shot finished just over the bar. Lecce's best chance of the half came right around the midway point of the half from a corner kick. Volturad played an in-swinging cross from the left side and nearly scored directly from the corner. Fortunately for us, the cross hit the bar and stayed out. Lecce came close again from a corner around the half hour mark. This time, Volturar played an outswinging corner from the right side. Sacco headed the ball clear at the near post, but the ball fell to Nise just outside the area. He went for goal, and his shot took a dangerous deflection in front of the goal, but finished wide of the mark. Lecce had another chance in the 35th minute. Gonzalez made a lovely turn in the area before squaring the ball to Lemons. The right back, who was only in the area because Lecce just had a free kick, did really well to control the pass with his back to goal. He then turned and shot towards the bottom corner, but Idasic did well to anticipate the shot, and so he was well positioned to make the catch. As always, Idasic had a very good match. If you play the ball anywhere in his vicinity, in all likelihood, he is going to eat it up. But like I said, Lecce had just about all of the chances in the half. To make matters worse, two out of our three center backs were cautioned in the first half, Hisai was late with a tackle on Daka in the 16th minute, and Barba was late with a tackle on Momo just before the break. The Hisai yellow was a little bit harsh in my opinion. He slid to win the ball, which he did, but collided with Daka in his follow-through. Meanwhile, Sako was fortunate not to be cautioned early in the match as well. He was right to be frustrated after he appeared to be fouled by Carozzo, but instead the free kick was given to Lecce. However, he expressed his frustration by throwing the ball away, and I think in most cases that would have been an immediate yellow card, but because it was early in the match, the official let him off with a stern warning. So the first half ended nil-nil. 
The second half did not start well at all. Lecce nearly opened the scoring only two and a half minutes after the restart. Vulturard played the ball to Dak on the right wing. He ran straight at Giannini, opened up the shot with a step over and fired towards the bottom corner, but Idasic made a fine save at the near post. Unfortunately, Lecce opened the scoring on the ensuing corner kick, and the goal was a bit of a comedy of errors. Momo played an in-swinging cross from the right side. The ball came off of Pascalau and slowly rolled out to Dak at the edge of the area. His low shot appeared to be heading wide of the goal. However, Barba tried to block the shot and nearly scored in his own goal. The ball flashed across the face of the Napoli goal. Then Costanzo tried to save the ball from going out for another corner kick, which he did, but he played the ball straight to Carozzo at the right edge of the area. Carozzo crossed the ball to the second post and Hasic headed into the top corner. Idasia could do nothing but watch as the ball sailed into the back of the goal. If that wasn't bad enough, not even 10 minutes later, Barba picked up a second yellow, though it wasn't entirely his fault. Didona was dispossessed by Gonzalez deep in the Napoli half. Barba came over to clear the ball, but Gonzalez nipped in just before Barba got there, so instead of clearing the ball, Barba put his foot straight through Gonzalez, so the dismissal was definitely warranted. I think we were very fortunate to not have Hisai sent off as well. Just past the hour mark, he went hard into a tackle on Momo and easily could have been cautioned, but the official kept his book in his pocket. After the Barba dismissal, Frustalupi immediately replaced Pavona with Vergara, but with Napoli down a man, there was a noticeable amount of space in the midfield, and Lecce nearly exploited that in the 65th minute. Gonzalez and Daka played a long give-and-go in the Napoli half before Gonzalez played a hard, accurate pass to Carozzo in the area. He controlled the ball well before cutting into his left. Fortunately, his low shot missed the target. But it just seemed like after the goal and then the dismissal, we were no longer up for it, and we saw that in the 68th minute after Trophy dispossessed Volturad and immediately counterattacked. Four Lecce players raced back and won the ball, while Vergara and Gioelli lagged behind them. Frustalupi did everything within his power to help. First, he replaced Gioelli with Davide Acampa, and then Giannini with Gennaro Iaccarino. That facilitated a change to a 4-3-2 with Costanzo and Hisai at center back, Acampa at left back, Didona at right back, Sacco, Vergara, and Iaccarino in the middle and Trophy and Ambrosino up top. Then he replaced Trophy with Antonio Pesce and Sacco with Giovanni Mercurio to get some fresh attacking players on the pitch, but it was all for naught. It was actually Lecce who had the final big chances of the match. Gonzalez dribbled between Iaccarino and Didona before teeing up substitute Christian Macri in the area. Fortunately, he slipped at the moment of truth and his shot finished wide of the mark. Then in the final minute of stoppage time, Lecce played a long ball into the area. Another substitute, Rares Brunette, beat Costanzo to the ball before shooting towards the bottom corner, but once again, Idasiak made the save. In the end though, we just could not overcome being down a man, and the match finished 1-0 in favor of Lecce. With the loss, we remained in the relegation playout zone, only two points clear of Lecce in the other playout position. This was a missed opportunity because Hellas Verona lost to Torino 2-1, on the flip side, that meant we remained only one point back of Hellas Verona. We were also only one point back of Bologna, who lost to Atalanta, and two points back of Genoa, who drew Fiorentina 1-1. To make matters worse, in the final minute of normal time, Frustalupi was shown a red card for descent, which meant that he had to sit out the final few minutes of this match, and more importantly, he had to sit out our next match. That was a midweek fixture against Inter on Tuesday, 
So let's review that match next. Inter came into the match sitting second in the table, only six points back of Roma. They had been in fine form of late as well, being unbeaten in their previous eight matches, six of which were wins. Meanwhile, we came into this match having won only one out of our previous 12 matches, so the form table certainly was not in our favor. As I mentioned, Barba was dismissed in the Lecce match, so he was not available for this one. However, Frustalupi recovered D'Agostino, who was suspended for the Lecce match due to yellow card accumulation. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Christian Kivu lined up in a 4-3-1-2 with William Rovida in goal. Fabio Cortinovis and Andrea Moretti started at centre-back. Franco Carboni started at left-back and Christian Dervici started at right-back. Mattia Sangali started in the centre of the midfield with Cesare Casadei to his left and Giovanni Fabian to his right. Finally, Lorenzo Peschettola played as the trequartista behind Jan Zuberek and Oliver Jurgens. For Napoli, Frustalupi once again made five changes to the squad that he fielded against Lecce. He lined up in his usual 3-4-2-1 with Huberti Dasek in goal. Pasquale Pontillo deputized for the suspended Benedetto Barba. He played alongside Davide Costanzo and Daniel Hisai in the back three. Gennaro Iaccarino got his first start since the very first match of the season. He played in the center of the midfield alongside Coli Sacco. Frustalupi changed both of his wingbacks for this match, which was no surprise. He tends to do that when we play twice in three days. Davide Acampa started over Enrico Giannini at left wing back, and Giuseppe D'Agostino started over Domenico Di Donna at right wing back. Antonio Vergara returned to full fitness for this match, so he started alongside Alessandro Spavone as the two trequartisti. That relegated Antonio Trophy to the bench. Finally, Giuseppe Ambrosino started as striker. So those are the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. This time, Napoli got off to a great start, opening the scoring only 8 minutes into the match. The goal started with a throw-in from the right side. Vergara was dispossessed by Fabian, but D'Agostino was first to the ball. He squared to Iaccarino along the edge of the area, and Iaccarino played a gorgeous no-look return pass into the area. D'Agostino took one touch to his right before firing on target. Rovida got a touch on the ball and probably should have kept it out, but somehow the ball ended up in the back of the goal. This goal was great for both Iaccarino and D'Agostino. For Iaccarino, it was his first goal contribution of the season after missing most of the season with a knee injury, so that will be great for his confidence. For D'Agostino, it was his fourth goal of the season to go along with five assists, but he's been heating up of late. He now has two goals and two assists in his last four matches. Curiously, the 18-year-old celebrated by putting the ball under his shirt, which is the universal sign that a footballer is going to be a father. Napoli continued to play well early in the match. In the 14th minute, Acampa made a lovely run down the left wing before playing the ball to Ambrosino. He made a lovely turn to get into the middle of the park before shooting from distance. Unfortunately, the shot was always rising and finished just over the bar. Inter responded well after that and nearly equalized in the 17th minute from a corner kick. Peschettola played an in-swinging cross from the right side. Zuberek won the ball at the near post, but his header finished on top of the goal. Inter came close again from a corner kick about 5 minutes later. This time Peschettola played an out-swinging corner from the left side. Cortinovis had the ball back to Fabian, but his volley from the edge of the area finished just over the bar. That was one thing I noticed in the first half. The Azzurini did a good job of forcing Inter to shoot from distance. That happened again in the 25th minute when Sangali went for a goal from about 30 yards out. 
but once again the shot finished over the bar. Inter continued to push forward and forced Sidasic to make his first save around the half hour mark, once again with a shot from outside the area, this time Zubarek went for goal with his left but Idasic got down to make the save. With the pressure mounting, you sensed that Inter would get the equalizer and that moment came in the 32nd minute. Jurgens picked up the ball on the left wing and ran at Sacco. Sacco was somewhat unlucky on the play because he got a foot on the ball but it bounced back off of Jurgens' shin and ended up right back in front of him. With Sacco beat, he wrapped his arms around Jurgens and the forward immediately went to ground earning Inter a penalty kick. Now, Jurgens went down very easily, but you simply cannot wrap your arms around another player, and the official had a clear view of the play. Cassade took the penalty and struck the ball so well that even though Idasia guessed correctly, he still was not able to make the save. To make matters worse, Ambrosino had to be removed right after that play with a physical problem, so he was replaced by Antonio Trofi. Inter very nearly went ahead a few minutes later, Iacadino's pass was intercepted by Sangali in the Napoli half, he laid it off to Cassade who immediately played Zubarek through, Zubarek took one touch and then blasted the ball towards the top corner, but Idasic made a fantastic save to protect the draw. It seemed like Inter were in control but we closed the half really well, led by Vergara. In the 38th minute he crossed the ball into the area but Sacco's volley from the edge of the 6 yard box finished over the bar. Then in the 40th minute he made a great run into the area and was clearly fouled by Moretti. The foul was identical to the one that Inter were given a penalty for but the ball rolled to Trophy so the official played the advantage. Trophy shot towards the bottom corner but somehow Rovida made the save. Spavona had a second chance from outside the area but Cortinovis handled the ball on the block so Napoli were awarded a free kick just outside the area. Sacco took the free kick and went directly for a goal but his shot finished over the bar. That was the final chance for either side in the first half, which finished 1-1. The second half was just as even as the first. Both sides had their share of chances in the opening 15 minutes, but nothing clear-cut until about the hour mark. First, Inter countered through Fabian and Jurgens before Idasic made an important save on Fabian. Then off the same place, Bavona cleared the danger and Trophy was able to get to the ball first. He carried to the edge of the area, cut in and shot between Moretti and substitute Alessandro Silvestri, but the shot sliced wide of the mark. Inter came close again 5 minutes later, substitute Samuel Grigar played Pescatola into the right side of the area. He may have taken a few too many touches before shooting with the outside of his left boot from a tight angle. That tight angle made it easier for Idasic to make the save. Much like in the first half, Inter were the more positive side and they appeared to be targeting the left wing. In the 71st minute, Pescatola played the ball to Jurgens on the line. He cut into the middle and shot low and hard, but once again Idasia kept it out. Considering Inter's position in the table, Napoli seemed content to defend the wave after wave of Inter attack. The next one came in the 77th minute, once again in transition and once again via the left wing. Substitute Fabio Abuso did well to hold the play up at midfield before laying it off to Fabian. He passed to Jurgens on the left side of the area who once again tested Idasiak and once again the keeper was up to the task. Inter's final chance came a few minutes prior to the end of the match. Napoli cleared Nikola Ilyev's corner to the top of the box where Carboni volleyed the ball on target. Not only did Idasiak make the save, he also didn't give up a rebound on what was a very well struck ball. So with that, the match ended 1-1 which was a great result for us considering we were playing against the second place team 
and we were away from home. We now have only one win in our last 13 matches, however, we've drawn 5 out of our last 6. Unfortunately, we didn't get much help from the other matches, which is something I find myself saying after every round. Verona drew Genoa, so they remained 1 and 2 points ahead of us respectively. Meanwhile, Bologna upset Sassuolo, so they are now 3 points clear of us. And finally, Lecce beat Fiorentina, so they pulled level with us on 33 points. The Azzurini will be back in action on Saturday with yet another tough match, this time against Cagliari. With our draw to Inted, Cagliari moved past Inted in the table, so for the second consecutive round, we will play against the second placed team. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll cover the latest news. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, we'll cover the latest news, and there can be only one place to start. That is with the Plus Valenza case. For those of you who either forgot about this or perhaps are not aware of it, there was an ongoing investigation into numerous clubs, including Napoli and Juventus, regarding suspicious player transfers. 62 transactions in total were being investigated, five of which involved Napoli. All five of those transactions were related to the Victor Osimhen swap deal with Lille. For the fans of North American sports, football swaps are not the same as trades. In reality, swaps are really just simultaneous purchases and sales. So with the Osimhen deal, Napoli purchased Victor from Lille for somewhere in the range of 70 to 80 million euros. At the time, the reports were that Napoli paid 50 million euros in cash, 20 million euros in players, and up to 10 million euros in bonuses. Those three players were third keeper Orestes Carnetsis and three Primavera players in Ciro Palmieri, Claudio Manzi, and Luigi Liguori. In other words, when we purchased Osimhen from Lille, we simultaneously sold these four players to them for a combined fee of 20 million euros. The accusation against us was that those four players were actually worth about 800,000 euros and that Victor's true value was about 52 million euros. So that would mean that Napoli generated fictitious capital gains of about 19.3 million euros and depreciation of 7.7 million. Now, the first question you might ask is how did the Fiji Chi investigation determine the value of these players, particularly those from the Primavera? According to the federal judge, their valuations were based on the age, career, position, and contract history of the players, but I think that leaves plenty of room for variance. That was certainly something I expected Napoli and all the other clubs involved in the investigation to dispute. In fact, they did just that on Thursday, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, many of the previous reports on this swap pointed to the fact that none of these youth players made it into Lille's first team, and in fact, all of them ended up returning to play in the lower divisions in Italy. Personally, I was never convinced by that argument. How many times have we seen clubs pay millions of euros for players who they thought would be the next Messi, and then those players don't pan out? 
In general, it's not uncommon for clubs to gamble on young players. We've also seen Premier League clubs pay grossly inflated figures for players simply because they have more money and can bully the competition. Sometimes the value of something is simply the amount that others are willing to pay for it. Now, I imagine what was peculiar here was that there were three Primavera players involved, so it seems highly unlikely that we may have stumbled upon the next three Messis. Also, while Liga is well known for developing young players, I don't think many clubs outside of PSG can afford to pay that much money for unknown youngsters. Lille certainly couldn't have given their financial situation. On the other hand, for that very reason, Lille stood to benefit from inflating Osiman's value a lot more than Napoli stood to benefit from inflating the values of those four players. I suspect those were the red flags that caught the investigators' attention. In terms of the players' values, the accusation acknowledged the complexity in determining players' transfer values, but cited that the peculiarity of the sales under investigation, perhaps the ones I just mentioned, made it likely that the negotiation was influenced by reasons beyond the technical or sporting sphere and encroached on budgetary policies. In other words, they believed both clubs inflated players' values in order to cook the books. If true, these transactions would have artificially increased Napoli's shareholder equity. For those of you who are not accountants, shareholder equity is total assets less total liabilities. So in simple terms, if a company is liquidated, shareholders' equity is the amount that would be left over for the owners after all debts had been paid off. These fictitious capital gains would have artificially increased total assets, and therefore they would have artificially increased shareholder equity. According to the prosecutor's office, these capital gains would have been seen in Napoli's half-year financial statements as at December 31st, 2020, whereby adjusted shareholder equity was 108.8 million euros instead of 74.1 million. We also saw it in the quarterly financial statements as at March 31st, 2021, where adjusted shareholder equity was 85.2 million instead of 56.2 million. Now, the second question many people asked when this report resurfaced for the umpteenth time was, what are the possible consequences? Of course, many fans were concerned about the possibility of being docked points in the table and how that might affect our Scudetto hopes. The original indictment gave us a bit of a hint at what the possible consequences could be. It stated very clearly that these figures would not have impacted the club's ability to enroll in the championship or to comply with other rules, and for that reason, the referral against Napoli was only administrative in nature. The expectation, therefore, was that the potential penalty, if found guilty, would be limited to a fine. That was confirmed on Wednesday. The prosecutor's office said that they were seeking a fine of €329,000 from the club and a suspension of five admin staff, Aurelio De Laurentiis for 11 months and 5 days, his wife Jacqueline, son Eduardo, and daughter Valentina for 6 months and 10 days. Jacqueline and Edo are officially vice presidents of the club. I'm not exactly sure what Valentina's position is. Perhaps she's now a VP as well and the club simply hasn't updated its website. And finally, they were seeking to suspend club CEO Andrea Chiavelli for 9 months and 15 days. That brings us to the third question, which is, what exactly would they be suspended from doing? For everyone but the club owners, these suspensions would be of little consequence. But for the owners themselves, they would actually be quite serious. 
According to Gazzetta dello Sport, De Laurentiis would not be able to participate in the Lega Council meetings, which I believe was the case when Lotito was suspended as well. However, a representative of the club could still attend those meetings and participate in the votes. According to the club's lawyer, Mattia Grassani, De Laurentiis would also not be able to sign sports performance contracts, go in the locker room before and after the matches, or deal with transfer market negotiations. Now, curiously, the punishment the prosecutor's office was seeking from Juventus was disproportionately low. Juve were under investigation for 42 transactions, 32 while Paratici was a sporting director and 10 under Cherubini's watch. According to the prosecutor's office, those 42 transactions generated fictitious capital gains of 60 million euros, which resulted in an increase in shareholder equity of 111.6 million. By the way, that did not even include the Cancelo Danilo swap or the Pjanic Artur swap. They were somehow deemed to have been made at the correct values, which frankly is ridiculous, particularly in the case of Pjanic and Artur. But even outside of those swaps, Juve had seven times the number of transactions under investigation and their shareholder equity would have increased by three and a half times that of ours. Yet, they were fined only 800,000 euros, which is just over twice the value of ours, and Agnelli's suspension was only 12 months, which was practically the same as De Laurentiis's. Now, I mentioned the clubs challenging the prosecutor's office valuations of the players, Grassani spoke to Radio Kiss Kiss on Wednesday where he suggested how Napoli might defend itself. He suggested that we would challenge the valuation of Osiman at 52 million euros, considering that he is now worth 100 million, even though he missed numerous matches due to injury. In other words, a 70 million euro valuation at the time would have been perfectly reasonable. He also indicated that the prosecutor's office used transfer marked to validate their valuations, which when I read that, I thought, you might as well throw this entire case in the bin. Transfermarkt is a fantastic resource, but it is certainly not a reliable source for player valuations. I'm sure you can find numerous players who have sold for values significantly greater or less than what was posted on Transfermarkt. In fact, Grassani even cited a case where a player's agent wrote to Transfermarkt to change his player's value from 3 million to 10 million just to demonstrate that this is not a credible source. As it turns out, the entire case was in fact thrown in the bin. On Friday, we learned that all of the accused were acquitted of all charges laid against them. That makes me wonder what the whole point of this investigation was in the first place. Either the prosecutor, Giuseppe Chine, was so delusional to believe that he could base player evaluations on a website like Transfermarkt, or this whole thing was just for show. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that it's the latter. Perhaps this was the Fiji Cheese way of sending a warning signal to clubs who might try to inflate player values in the future. Now, Kine does have the option to appeal the decision, so this case may not be closed just yet. If I were Kine, I would not go after Napoli for the valuation of Victor Osiman. Rather, I'd go after Napoli for the valuations of Carnetsis, Palmieri, Manzi, and Liguori. If Napoli's logic is that Osman's valuation of 70 million euros is reasonable based on his performance after that transaction, then you could use the same logic to dispute the valuations of the players that were swapped for Victor. None of them performed well after the transaction, in fact none of them amounted to much at all, which would suggest that their collective values were not 20 million euros. 
In other news, Luciano Spalletti gave a guest lecture in the Red Room at the Federico Due University in Napoli on Tuesday. This was part of their Lo Sport in Academia project, and all reports suggest that Spalletti was a big hit. He even showed up with a flip chart and a pre-planned lecture. On one of the pages of the flip chart were numerous expressions, I have to go to training, I have to graft, I want to be coached, I want to be ready, and best of all, either I pay the price of discipline or I'll pay the price of regret and credit to Patrick Kendrick for those translations. The lecture seemed to be as much about life as it was about football. As always, Spalletti used many metaphors in his speech. One that seemed to be a popular one was how he described the refocusing after the loss to Fiorentina. He said, It happens to us in Tuscany where there is fog. It is there and it interferes with our sight, but then it disappears and we see again. The lecture was also very interactive. At one point, he called a few students up to draw their preferred formations. I don't know how much weight to put into it, but I saw a tweet online from one of the students who attended the lecture saying that after hearing what Spalletti had to say, he was convinced Mertens would start against Roma. Finally, Spalletti closed with another typical Spallettiism. He said, you don't have to be envious of having, but of knowing. If you are constantly thinking about where to start, you will spend your life on one leg. You don't have to be Maradona to prove that you have blood in your veins. Moving on, Cristiano Giuntoli gave a long interview to Radio Kiss Kiss where he provided a number of updates on players we've been linked to of late. He commented on Kvisha Varishkelia amidst numerous reports that Napoli are very close to signing the Georgian youngster. Giuntoli said that they've been following Varishkelia for some time and will do their best to bring him to Napoli. He added that a few things have to mature to get to the right point, but he is one of their top priorities, and Varishkelia has the characteristics to be a Napoli player. For those of you who might be wondering about Varishkelia's current contract situation, I can provide some clarity on that. Varishkelia was under contract with Russian club Rubin Kazan. With everything that's going on between Russia and Ukraine, the club decided to suspend his contract. That was on March 24th, and the same day he signed with the Georgian club Dinamo Batumi so that he could continue to play. Then a week later, Ruben Kazan issued a press release stating that they had mutually agreed to terminate Varishkelia's contract, citing that the player's family in Georgia faced criticism and aggression over the fact that their son played for a Russian club. They also said this decision was in the best interest of the future fate of the footballer. Now, I wasn't able to get the press release itself because the club site is in Russian and it can't be translated, so I'm relying on another site, which I've never heard of, that reported this, but I don't see any reason why they would misquote a press release. In any event, if this report is true, then it would mean that Napoli would be purchasing Varishkelia from Dinamo Batumi, and whatever happens with the war should not in any way affect this transfer. The other player we've been linked to is Matthias Oliveira. Juntoli said that Oliveira is an excellent footballer with different characteristics than Mario Rui, but he is not the only player they are looking at in that position. Meanwhile, he seemed to deflect the question on Sassuolo's Hamid Jr. Traore. He said, Traore is a good footballer and many like him, but we're thinking of our six finals and then we will talk about other situations. He added that they need to be very attentive of the budget which for me is all he needed to say to dispel the rumors that we might sign Traore. He's a fantastic player, Juntoli said so himself. He said he will be strong in the coming years, but I simply don't see the club spending what it will cost to get Traore. 
I'm not even sure Sassuolo will even sell him this season. Sassuolo have a number of players that could potentially be on the market, including Berardi, Scamacca, and Raspadori, but they can't sell everyone at once, and as Carnevali recently told Gazzetta dello Sport, they only sell players when they have a suitable backup. When they sold Locatelli, for example, they had Davide Fratesi waiting to play. Likewise, Traore was the replacement for Jeremy Boga. It seems unlikely to me that they already have a replacement for Traore lined up, so I think Traore will stay for at least one more season. Next, Giuntoli made it quite clear that Napoli are not pursuing Andrea Bellotti. He said Bellotti is a great player, but Napoli are not following him. The one player that we've been linked to that Giuntoli did not comment on is South Korean center back Kim Min Jae. This is another player we're linked to who I doubt will join Napoli. We were actually linked to the Fenerbahce defender in the winter, and I recall him saying that he will not join a club where he is a backup player because he needs to play regularly ahead of the World Cup. With Rachmani and Koulibaly being our likely centre-back pairing, and with the World Cup not commencing until November, it seems unlikely to me that Min Jae will join Napoli anytime soon, if at all. Finally, Juntoli confirmed the club's intention to redeem Andre Frank Zamboangisa. Henry Bell from the In the Shadow of Vesuvio podcast tweeted a great stat about Angisa that he saw in the Gazzetta dello Sport. It said, with Angisa in the squad, we have a record of 14 wins, 2 draws, and 2 losses. Without him in the squad, we have a record of 8 wins, 4 draws, and 4 losses. To put it another way, we've dropped 10 points with Angisa in the squad and 20 points with him not in the squad. I think that's a pretty clear indication of how important he is for us. I'll close the news with a couple of quick stories. We'll start with a couple of sad stories, unfortunately. First, eight people have been indicted for manslaughter in the investigation into the death of Diego Armando Maradona. There are all medical professionals who, according to the prosecution, through their omissions and mistreatment, put Maradona in a helpless position, abandoned him, and left him to his fate in what they called a scandalous home hospitalization. If found guilty, these eight people could face anywhere from eight years to 25 years of imprisonment. In other news, former Napoli and Colombian international footballer Freddy Rincon passed away on Thursday. Rincon was hospitalized on Monday following a car accident earlier that day. Rincon was amongst five people who were injured when their van collided with a bus in Cali. Rincon played one season with Napoli in 94-95. The midfielder scored seven goals in 28 Serie A appearances. In truth though, he did not enjoy his time in Napoli. As Il Matino noted, Rincon had the tough task of filling the gaps left behind by some of our most important players from the Scudetto winning squad. Maradona left in 91, Alemão left in 92, and Caraca left in 93. It also didn't help that he was initially played out of position. Vincenzo Guarini played him as a forward. He was sacked after 11 matches and replaced by Vujadin Boskov. Boskov moved Rincon back to his natural position as an attacking midfielder, but Rincon's time at Napoli was destined to be difficult through no fault of his own. The club was in financial crisis and unfortunately, the fans took out their frustrations on the player. Il Matino quoted Rincon describing his feeling of isolation. He said, I'm locked up at home. If I go out, the fans will insult me. Rincon's most memorable match for Napoli was a 3-2 win over Lazio. Lazio were up 2-0 at the break. Rincon scored a doppietta early in the second half to equalize before Renato Buzzo scored the late winner. That put Napoli in a position to qualify for the UEFA Cup. 
Unfortunately, we ended up missing out on the UEFA Cup by a single point. So we send our condolences to the friends and family of Freddy Rincon. We'll close the news with a couple of administrative updates. Napoli has officially confirmed the dates of the two summer retreats. We will once again visit Valdisola in Dimaro Folgarida from July 9th to the 19th. Then we will return to Castel di Sangro from July 23rd to August 6th. Both mayors spoke to the media upon those dates being confirmed. The mayor of Dimaro Folgarida spoke to Radio Kiss Kiss where he highlighted that this will be Napoli's 11th year at Dimaro, which remains a record amongst Serie A clubs. The mayor of Castel di Sangro, Angelo Caruso, told Teleclub Italia that Napoli could play two friendly matches while they are there. They could also leave the retreat for a day to play a friendly abroad before returning to complete their stay in Abruzzo. That will do for part two. In part three, we'll preview the derby on Monday against Roma. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to part 3 of the Forza Napoli podcast. We'll close the pod with a preview of the Derby del Sole, which will be played on Easter Monday. This is a rare home match played immediately after another home match. Now, normally that's something you would be happy about, but I suspect most Napoli fans are more concerned than they are happy. That's because of our unusual home form this season. The last time we played back-to-back home matches, we lost both of them, Atalanta and Empoli, respectively. As we've talked about previously, five of our six losses this season have come at the Maradona. Meanwhile, Roma have been one of the most informed sides in the second half of the season. They came into this match unbeaten in their last 11 matches with 7 wins, 4 draws, and no losses. Now, they didn't exactly have the most difficult schedule during that stretch, but they did manage a 1-0 win over Atalanta and a massive 3-0 win over Lazio in the Derby della Capitale. That was probably one of Roma's best performances of the season. What made that win even more impressive was that Roma were on short rest having played in the Conference League midweek. Speaking of the Conference League, Roma played in the tournament again this past week. They finally got a win over FK Bodo Glimt in their fourth attempt. In the group stage, Bodo Glimt beat Roma 6-1, which was the most lopsided defeat in Jose Mourinho's career. In the second meeting in the group stage, they drew 2-2, and then Bodo won the first leg of the quarterfinals 2-1. The victory on Thursday at the Olimpico was another one of Roma's best performances of the season. Roma completely dominated the Norwegians from start to finish. Nicolo Zaniolo scored a tripleta in the 4-0 win. Prior to that match, he hadn't scored a goal in any competition since January 23rd, so Romanisti will be hoping that that performance will have snapped him out of this funk. Now, Bodo Glimt aren't exactly a household name, or at least they weren't at the start of this season. Roma may just have put them on the map, but this is somewhat concerning for me. Even though they may not have been the most difficult opponent, the way Zaniolo scored these goals suggests that he will come into this match full of confidence. 
His first goal was the conclusion of a stunning team move from Roma. Zaniolo finished the play after Roma completed five consecutive one-touch passes. His second goal was a lovely dink over the keeper. On the goal, Nikola Zalewski made a fantastic run down the left wing before playing a perfectly weighted through ball to Zaniolo. He's been an absolute revelation under Mourinho. The Primavera graduate spent most of the season on the bench. He replaced Matias Vigna at halftime in Roma's match against Hellas Verona after Roma went down two goals to nil. Roma came back to draw that match 2-2 and Zalewski hasn't looked back since. He started in all but one of Roma's matches since then. The only game that he didn't start was Roma's 2-1 comeback win over Salernitana and even in that match, Roma scored both of their goals after Zalewski was substituted into the game. Back to Zaniolo, his third goal was a fantastic finish as well. Now, Roma had a volatile first half of the season, but Mourinho seems to have worked out his best 11. Numerous players are having strong second halves of the season. We already talked about Zaniolo. Mourinho's also reinvented Henrik Mkhitaryan as a number 10, and that seems to have brought him back to life. Last season, Mkhitaryan was a key part of Roma's attack, scoring 11 goals and adding 13 assists but his form declined dramatically at the start of this season. He still isn't contributing as many goals or assists, but since Mourinho moved him into the number 10, Mkhitaryan has once again become a key part of the Roma attack. The same can be said of Marash Kumbula in terms of turning his season around. You might recall that Kumbula was more highly rated than Amir Rachmani when they played together at Hellas Verona. Kumbula had a decent first season under Paulo Fonseca, but there didn't seem to be much room for him in Mourinho's 4-2-3-1 at the start of this season. A spot only opened up for him when Mourinho switched to the three-man back line, which happens to be the same defensive structure Fonseca deployed during his time at Roma. That change in formation also coincided with Roma's change in fortunes. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. I think Mourinho will line up in a 3-5-2 formation with Rui Patricio in goal. Even though they all started against Bodo Glimt, I think we'll see Chris Smalling, Roger Ibanez, and Gianluca Mancini as the back three. I wouldn't be surprised if Mancini played in the middle to get under the skin of Victor Osimhen, and I also wouldn't be surprised to see Kumbula in the starting 11 since he is the most rested of any of Roma's center backs. I think we'll see Lorenzo Pellegrini start in the center of the midfield with Brian Cristante to his left and Henrik Mkhitaryan to his right. That would relegate Sergio Oliveira to the bench. Nikola Zalewski will start at left wing back and Rick Karsdorp should start at right wing back. Now, normally I would expect Mourinho to play Mkhitaryan and Pellegrini as the two trequartisti in a 3-4-2-1, but I think Mourinho is going to reward Nicolo Zaniolo for his performance against Bodo Glimt. Also, Mourinho removed Zaniolo from that match after only an hour, which suggests that he might have been saving Zaniolo for this match. Therefore, I think we'll see Zaniolo play alongside Tammy Abraham in the front two. However, I do suspect that this could end up looking like a 3-4-1-2 as well, with Henrik Mkhitaryan sliding into the number 10. For Napoli, I think Luciano Spalletti will line up in a 4-2-3-1 with David Ospina in goal. Kalidou Koulibaly and Amir Rachmani will start at centre-back. Mario Rui will start at left-back and Alessandro Zanoli should start at right-back. I don't believe Giovanni Di Lorenzo will be fit to play this match. Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa returns from suspension, so I think he will line up in the double pivot with Stanislav Lobotka. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Dries Mertens will start over Piotr Zielinski in the number 10. Now, the risk there is that you're using both your first and second strikers. However, 
Andrea Patania completed nearly all of the group training on Friday, so I think he will be available as a substitute. In all likelihood, Osiman will play the full 90 minutes at striker, so we could replace Mertens with Zielinski if need be, and if for some reason we need to replace Osiman, say if he loses his cool and he's at risk of dismissal, then we could still bring on Zielinski and push Mertens into the 9. Despite the rumors that both Eli Felmas and Chuki Lozano could play from the first minute, I'm going to stick with Lorenzo Insigne to start on the left wing and Matteo Politano to start on the right wing. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. My first key to the match is that we need to score first. Calcio Napoli 24 had some really eye-opening stats on our results at the Maradona when we score first compared to when our opponent scores first. We've played 16 matches at home and we opened the scoring in half of them. In those 8 matches where we scored first, we have a near-perfect record. The only match we did not win was a 1-1 draw to Inter. Meanwhile, we only managed to salvage a positive result in 3 out of the 8 matches where our opponent opened the scoring. We beat Juventus 2-1, we drew Hellas Verona 1-1, and we beat Udinese 2-1. When you think of the mental strength of this club or lack thereof, perhaps these stats are not so surprising. Scoring instills confidence and when we play with confidence, we're practically unstoppable. Conceding is demoralizing and as we spoke about earlier in the week, we don't have too many players who are capable of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. I think whoever scores first is likely to score one or two more goals as well, which is a good segue to our second key to the match. My second key to the match is that we need to be better at defending the counterattack. Mourinho's teams do not play possession football, they will look to strike on the counter, and as we saw against Fiorentina, we have not been very good at defending the counter lately. That is why I have no doubt in my mind that Anguissa will start this match. Aside from the fact that he'll be well rested, Anguissa can definitely help with defending the counter. Assuming we line up in a 4-2-3-1, that would mean Fabian would start on the bench. He didn't do a whole lot against Fiorentina, so I think that decision would be warranted. I think Mourinho's brand of football also suits a club that played midweek. I mentioned Roma's win over Bodo Glimt on Thursday, which is why this match is being played on Monday. I wouldn't consider that to be too much of a disadvantage for Roma though. They got the extra day of rest and that Conference League match was in Rome, so they didn't have to travel. As I mentioned, Roma dominated that match, so even though some of their key players played the full 90 minutes or close to it, the match wouldn't have been as taxing on them as it would have been if they were behind. Finally, Mourinho complained about having to play against Lazio immediately after playing in the Conference League, and then they went ahead and steamrolled Lazio anyways. My final key to the match is we need to stop Tammy Abraham. Tammy has scored 15 goals in 31 Serie A appearances, which, according to the AS Roma Partita Twitter account, is only one goal shy of the record for most goals scored by an Englishman in Serie A. That record is currently held by Gerald Hitchens, who scored 16 goals for Inter in the 1961-62 season. The same Twitter account also pointed out that only two players have scored more goals than Abraham in their debut seasons for Roma. Rodolfo Volk scored 21 goals in the 1929-30 season, and Pedro Manfredini scored 16 goals in the 1959-60 campaign. Naturally, many have drawn comparisons between the top scorers of each of these clubs, Tammy scored those 15 goals over 2,628 minutes of play, 
but two of them have come from the penalty spot. Victor has 12 goals over 1,542 minutes of play, so Victor is definitely scoring at a quicker rate. And the same can be said of their production in Europe. Tammy has 8 goals in 652 minutes of play in the Conference League, while Victor has 4 goals in 321 minutes of play in the Europa League, and I think it's safe to say that the competition is stronger in the Europa League. Nevertheless, the point is Abraham is a dangerous striker, and if we want to win this match, we need to do our best to keep him off the score sheet. For my prediction, I'm going to do just that, and I'm going to go with a 2-0 Napoli win, so I think we are going to end this run of 8 matches without recording a clean sheet. Meanwhile, Roma have not been held scoreless in about 2 months, so I'm really going out on a limb with my prediction that they won't score. The last time they didn't score was in their 2-0 loss to Inter in the Coppa Italia quarterfinals, and just prior to that, they were held to a scoreless draw against Genoa. I'll give the goals to Victor Osimhen and Dries Mertens. Now, this is a must-win match for us after both Inter and Milan took care of business on Friday against Spezia and Genoa, respectively. Given that Inter have the head-to-head advantage over us, even if we win this match, we'll need Inter to drop at least 4 points to have any chance of winning the Scudetto. If we don't win this match, then our Scudetto hopes will have all but dissipated. Keep in mind that Inter have the easiest run-in of any of the top clubs. With the 3 goals we conceded to Fiorentina, we no longer have the best defensive record in the league. Inter have now conceded 1 goal fewer than we have. This will not be an easy match though both Carlos Perez and Jose Mourinho spoke about this match in their post-match conference on Thursday. Mourinho noted that Napoli are competing for the Scudetto but Roma are competing for 5th so he wants respect. I think he has Spalletti's respect and I definitely don't think Spalletti will take anything for granted. Fortunately, as Il Matino pointed out, we've seen a pattern of strong responses to poor performances from Napoli this season. After the loss to Inter, we scored a poker against Lazio. After back-to-back losses to Atalanta and Empoli, we beat Milan. After the loss to Spezia, we drew Juventus. And after the loss to Milan, we won three consecutive matches, including wins over Hellas Verona and Atalanta. So hopefully that trend continues after our loss to Fiorentina. That will do for this preview. I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please share it with a friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore D5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. Be sure to check out our Twitter page for our latest Napolitan song of the week. This week's song is the one and only Clementino Cosa Cosa Cosa. Clementino also featured on one of the tracks of Foya's new album. That song is called Santa Lucia, so check that out as well. I'll be back next week to review the Roma match, as well as our latest Primavera and Femenile matches. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.